Praise the Lord. I trust God is blessing you and refreshing you and challenging you. He's doing that to us, isn't he? Do you enjoy being challenged? That Sometimes it feels, ouch. It hurts a little, doesn't it? But that's how we grow, to be challenged, to be stretched. And we want to grow. I want to grow. Do you want to grow? Yeah, I want to grow. Amen. I don't know when we sang that hymn, but I think we sang it sometime yesterday or today. Um, Still pressing on to higher ground. We want to keep going. The alternative isn't very good. We don't stay in neutral very long, do we? We lose ground. Okay, I think we just stand together for a, a prayer. Would you come pray for me? Is it Ezra? Would you come up here and have a prayer? That'd be a blessing. Kind Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for another day and thank you for the opportunity of coming and being here this Bible school and help each one of us to learn what you would have us to learn and help us to be fertile hearts that would have good soil ready to receive what you would have us to learn and be with brother pray that you would be with brother Alan and help him to speak the words you'd have him to speak Your name, amen. Amen, thank you. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. Okay, we'd like to look at another section in 1 Peter here. So you can turn there if you have your Bibles, which you do. Um, 1 Peter 1, we'd like to look at verses 13 and go into chapter 2, verse 3. So we'll try to look at that section here today. And uh, the theme for this series is called unto God's eternal glory. And the title for today is, As Obedient Children. We're called unto God's eternal glory as obedient children, is the thought there. You know, the very thought that God has children is an amazing thought. That's a thought that when we stop, ponder, reflect on that, try to wrap our mind around the concept and idea that the eternal God has children, That's an amazing thought. It really is something that we can't quite comprehend. And the very thought that you and myself are children of God is an amazing thought. You know, the angels are called ministering spirits. So Michael, the archangel, and Gabriel, who said he stands in the presence of God, neither one of them can say, can neither one of them turn and worship God And say, our Father. They're ministering spirits. So the privilege, the the amazing uh, privilege that we have to, to, to get on our knees or to lift our voice in prayer. As Jesus taught us to pray and say, our Father which art in heaven. It's a beautiful thought. It's a beautiful privilege that we can't, uh, that we can't comprehend. So we want to talk about it. We're called into God's eternal glory as obedient children. Now, my children, my children are part of a family that, have a, that has a needy father. My children, I have six of them, are part of a family that has a needy father. I wish it wasn't that way. And I trust that God is working in my life to perfect those things that are lacking. But the fact remains that Those six children, those beautiful children that God has entrusted to us, their daddy has needs, and he has imperfections, and they get to live with them, and they get to see them, and they get to experience them at times. Now, I suspect that most of you are part of a family with a father that has needs. Most of you are part of a family with a daddy that has needs in his life. I just want to encourage you, be careful how you respond to your parents when you see those needs in their lives. You know, I didn't always have the right attitude in my heart toward my father, and God has had to do a work there, 
it was a good, it was a blessing, and I'm glad he did that work. But you know, I also suspect that your fathers and mothers have children that have needs. Is that right? It's that way, isn't it? We have needy parents, and they have needy children. But I'm thankful that I can tell you this morning that in God's family, in the family of God, our Father is perfect. Our Father is absolutely perfect. He has no needs. And that's a blessing. I'm thankful for that. God is everything that a father could be and should be. I hope you believe that this morning. I hope you believe that God is everything a father could be and should be and that you can trust him and you can find that in him. I hope that is your life. Okay, so we said that the title this morning is found there in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, as obedient children. So we're called into God's eternal glory as obedient children. Are all God's children obedient? Are all his children obedient? They should be. Thank you, John. But the fact remains, are all God's children obedient? Just think about that and ponder it. I want you to turn. You know, I told you to turn here to 1 Peter. I'm so sorry. But we're actually going to look at a passage. Keep your finger there. We're going to turn to a passage in Ezekiel. And Brother Larry read this passage yesterday. And it says some interesting things. And we could turn to other passages that would say some of the same things. Well, let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 2. We're considering this question, are all God's children obedient? <clears throat> Ezekiel chapter 2. We're going to start reading in verse 3 and read through verse 5. And this was after Ezekiel, or he's commissioned there to, to the Spirit entered into him, and he's commissioned to speak. And this is what God says to him in verse 3. And he... This was God speaking to him. And he said unto me, Son of man, I send thee to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that hath rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me even unto this very day. For they are impudent children and stiff-hearted. I do send thee unto them, and thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God. And they, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are a rebellious house... They shall yet shall, I'm sorry, yet shall know that there hath been a prophet among them. That's an interesting phrase. So according to that, those children were not obedient. He says they were impudent and stiff-hearted. They were a rebellious nation that rebelled against him. And so you see the problem that God had in the Old Testament. And I'm sorry, but I think it's still God's problem today at times is obedient children. And now we want to try to look at this passage in 1 Peter 2, and we want to remember and realize that we are called unto this eternal glory. That's where we're headed. We're on a journey. We said that yesterday. We're strangers and pilgrims. We're sojourning through this world. We're going towards that eternal glory, and we're called there. The Almighty God has called us. Our Father... And he has provided for us a great salvation we tried to look at yesterday. So we can go and we can be on the journey. And now, he says we should go as obedient children. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Are all God's children obedient? Ephesians chapter 2 says this. We'll read uh, verses 1 through 4. And you hath he quickened. I'll, I'll wait just a second. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past. In the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. 
And we praise God for verse 4 that says, but God. Amen? Who is rich in mercy. So there we have, it talks about the spirit that works. The spirit that is alive. The spirit that is moving and working in the children of disobedience. What all that means, I'm not going to expound on it. But the question is, are all God's children obedient? And then it says in verse 3 that they were by nature the children of wrath. To me, that sounds like people that are not converted or born again. And let's turn to Ephesians 5, verse 1. Yet one more reference. (coughs) We're called as obedient children. Ephesians 5, verse 1. Be therefore followers of God as dear children. And that word dear is the same Greek word... That when Jesus was baptized and also there on the Mount of Transfiguration, God came down and or God spoke and he said, this is my beloved son. And it said, this is the same word here. It's saying, as dear children, as beloved children, be therefore followers of God. I think that's a good definition for obedient children. Followers of God. Not only has he grace to impart into our life, to empower us, and the wisdom to direct us, but he, he wants to invest that in our life. But he has also given us, not only does he have the grace and the wisdom for us, he's given us an example in the life of the Lord Jesus. Okay, there's some things, when we think of this passage, let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, that's where we're at. 1 Peter 1. I don't think I'm going to read it. We're going to work down through it, and then I might read each section as we go. Okay. When we think of the passage today, in in order to be obedient children, okay, just like children in our natural families, in order to be obedient children, there are some things we don't do, and there are some things that we should do. That's pretty simple. So we see that in the passage today. There are things that we do that make us obedient and some things we refrain from doing. Obedient here simply means attentive hearkening. It's compliance or submission. The picture is children that are listening, children that are listening with the intention of living it out, of, of submitting to the direction and following it. Okay, let's look at some of the characteristics of God's children. We'll try to look at four today from this passage. In verses 13 through 21, let's read that, the first one. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written... Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, there's that word again, we're children, right? And if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons, judgeth according to every man's work. We heard about that this morning. Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Forasmuch as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest, was revealed. So we said that yesterday, the the vision for salvation, the the heart of God and the, the purpose of salvation was planned way before the foundation of the world. But was manifest in these last times. Jesus Christ was revealed in these last times for you, he says. Verse 21. Who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory. That your faith and hope might be in God. So the first characteristic we want to consider. The first characteristic of obedient children is that they are holy in life. They are holy in life. Our text literally says, verse 15, in all manner of conversation. So they are holy in all of life is the picture there. Uh, We don't use that word conversation that way, but it simply means in their manner of life. 
or, or their, their lifestyle or their life, their living. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of the word holy or holiness. We heard that word last night a few times, and we attribute it to God, and it's right. Holiness has its origin in God. It definitely doesn't have it in mankind. That is the origin of holiness. But what do you think of when you think of holiness? You know, sadly, I'm afraid that sometimes God's children are more afraid of holiness than they are of sinfulness. And that should never be. As children of God, we should love the nature of our God and our Father. But I don't know what you think of when you think of holiness. Sometimes uh, holiness is looked at as cold, hard, immovable, unbudging, or uncaring. Sometimes that's the picture we have because, because men have affected our view of holiness. They have. And sometimes our view is not a biblical view. But we need to have a biblical view of holiness. But holiness is not cold, indifferent, and uncaring. That is not holiness. Biblical holiness, the Bible talks over and over and over again in the Old Testament about worshiping God in the beauty of holiness. Holiness is beautiful, it cares, it provides salvation. It provides grace. It preserves us in the everyday affairs of life. It is beautiful. And when you see a man or a woman of God who walks in holiness, and you see the glow of that virtue on their face, it's beautiful. It's powerful. The holiness of God is powerful. I never forgot the story. I'm not going to tell you who it was, but there was a minister... A man who walked with God, and he's simply walking down the sidewalks. And someone came up towards him. And as this person came closer and closer, he looked in the face of this holy man of God. And as they got closer, this individual just began to weep. He was in the presence of the holiness of God in a small way. That's beautiful. So remember that God is a perfect father. His children aren't always obedient, I don't think, but he is a perfect father. And when he calls us to something, he has our best interest in mind. God isn't trying to make our lives miserable. Oh, why do we have to do that? That's not God's heart. We've heard over and over that's the disciplined life that really experiences freedom in this world. The disciplined life, the one that restricts and hinders from the things of this world and allows the grace of God and the love of God to fill that. That is true liberty. But God, it tells us that in God's presence is fullness of joy. And that's what he created us to experience. But he knows that we'll only experience fullness of joy through holiness. All right. We're going to take a little journey. This is a little bit of a Bible study this morning. So follow with me if you could. This quote here, it's in 15 and 16, but especially in verse 16, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Where's that found in the Old Testament? Obviously, it is written, so it's quoting from the Old Testament. You can find it in your center column or wherever, I'm sure. But who will share? Where's it found? Okay, it's in Leviticus. It's actually... Three times that quote is in Leviticus. We want to talk about that a little bit. The word holy is found in the KJV 611 times. All right, that's just information. Follow with me. But do you know which book uses the word holy the most? Which book has holy in it the most frequent in the whole Bible, the KJV? Leviticus. 94 times in Leviticus. What was happening in Leviticus? And what was God doing in Leviticus? We want to talk about that for just a minute to try to give some background to this. Well, in the book of Leviticus, they were at Mount Sinai. They arrived at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 18. 
They departed from Sinai in Numbers chapter 10, verse 11. So that whole block of Scripture, which is quite a few chapters and verses, when you put it in the whole of Scripture, that's recording for us what God did to His people at Mount Sinai. And in that block of Scripture, we have the word holy 153 times. That's one-fourth of all the references of the whole Bible is found for us while his children were at Mount Sinai. What was God trying to tell his children? Let's turn there. Keep your marker here in Peter, but let's turn to Exodus chapter 20. You know this account. You know your Bibles. Exodus chapter 20. Okay, we're going to read two verses here, actually three. I'm sorry, it's four. Exodus 20, verse 18. And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. Why was the mountain smoking? Why was there thunder and lightning? What happened? Anyone? God descended, thank you. God came down. So this was a revelation of God. Verse 19, And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God has come to prove you, okay, that that his fear may be before your faces, that you sin not. And the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near and in the, unto the thick darkness where God was. So God's saying, or Moses told the people, God did this. He came down on this mountain. He revealed himself to you to put a fear in your hearts, to manifest his holiness and put a fear in your heart that you wouldn't sin. Now, he didn't just want to scare his people. What immediately follows this account, you can look down verse 22, and, and God right there begins to give instructions for building an altar. So, right after this experience, God revealed himself to his people there. He gave instructions on building an altar, a tabernacle, sacrifices, the priests, the high priest. And it's chapters and chapters and chapters of God doing this, giving direction and instruction to his people. Why? Does God care how we worship him? Yes. God does care how we worship him. He took chapters and chapters of the Bible to tell them how to build this tabernacle, how to put this altar in there, and how to present uh, sacrifices on it. And so you simply, you, you, have this, uh, you have this tabernacle here. And here you have an altar. And there's a holy, this is a crude drawing But you have a holy place and the most holy place and the altar is there. And he gives them direction. And you have priests that offer these sacrifices. And so you come in here. And the the majority of the people never even entered this. The priests did. And then the high priest entered this. But you came in here with your sacrifice. And that sacrifice was given so there could be be a cleansing of your conscience. Or or a a covering there for sin. Not a cleansing of your conscience because it couldn't do that. But they could come, and they could come that close to the holiness of God. They could come that close to the holiness of God. They could see the presence of the Lord over the tabernacle, but they could not go into that presence where the mercy seat was. Is it important to God that his children are holy? I want you to think a little bit. God gave them, you know, the book of Hebrews Finds It almost sounds like it's criticizing this manner of worship in the Old Covenant. But it was a good, it was okay in its time. It served the purpose and what it was given for. We tend to look at that and kind of disdain or put it down. But it did serve a purpose. And people could worship God. And there were true saints of God that worshiped God in the beauty of holiness through that system. It worked for them. Now... I want you to stop and think a minute. The children of Israel were delivered with a mighty deliverance from Egypt, which is a type of the world. Within a few weeks, they came to Mount Sinai. 
The first thing God does is reveal himself to them, his holiness. And he gives them a system of worship, if you want to term it that, to where they could worship him in holiness. In a sense, they had what they needed. I don't think we should ever contradict that. They had what they needed for their time. Is that right? They did. Were there holy people among them? Absolutely. There were holy men and women there. They weren't all, I don't believe. Now, you would think, after God provided all this for them, a mighty deliverance out of Egypt, he fed them every day with manna. He gave them water out of the rock. He provided for their everyday needs. He provided them a tremendous a way to worship him in holiness through the sacrifices, through the priests, etc. You would have thought that these people would just progressively grow in holiness. Did God have a reason to not expect that? With all that he did for them and all that he provided for them, that they would just increase and grow in holiness. I think he had a right to expect that. Is that what happened? Not as a people. There were individuals that did and lived holy lives, but not as a people. There wasn't a progressive. Matter of fact, it went the other way. And you see it also in Leviticus, I think it is, where it talks about the warnings that if you turn away from God, this will happen. And if you, I'll do this. And if you don't repent, I'll do this. And if you don't repent, I'll do this. And if you don't repent for that, I'm going to send you into captivity. That's what happened. There was not a progression. I'm sorry, but as a nation, they did not show us a good example as obedient children. Now, Hebrews tells us in the New Testament, we have a perfect high priest. Isn't that amazing? We have a perfect high priest. It's not like Aaron. Aaron and his descendants, they had their faults and they had their needs, but it was a system that worked and that God honored and accepted. But we have a perfect high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a better covenant. And we say, yeah, we do. And we say, we have better sacrifices, we have better promises, and we have a better hope. And we say, yeah. We have that. The new covenant is way better. But do we have better fruit? Do we have more holiness? Do we have more of his holiness in our life? We have better than they did. Is it a wrong expectation for God that his children would steadily grow and increase in holiness? God expects that from his children. I think he has a right to expect that. Look at the provisions we have through the gospel. Now I said to be obedient children, there are some things we don't do and there are some things we do. So we want to try to look at that through this passage. We want to notice three things from verses 13 and 16. We're talking about God's children are holy in life. The first thing we see in verse 13 gird up the loins of your mind. Now the picture here is the picture here is that we would watch over our thoughts. We would watch over our thoughts. Gird up the loins of your mind. That sounds a little like KJV 1611 or probably not even that, whatever. It sounds a little outdated. You probably didn't use those words this week or last week. That's okay. I'm not minimizing that. But it simply means take responsibility for your thoughts. You know, our thoughts... We live out of our thoughts. I don't think we get this enough, but we actually live everyday life. The things I say, the things I do are a response or we're living out of our thoughts. That's why it's so important that we gird up the loins of our mind. 
Our thoughts are very important. Charles Hamilton likes to say, ideas have consequences. That is true. We need to be careful with what happens in our mind. You know, this includes moral sins like lust and fantasy. If you allow these thoughts of lust, if you allow them there, or thoughts of fantasy, it includes that. I'm not going to elaborate on those, but it includes more than that. This includes prideful thoughts of superiority about myself. This includes thoughts where I elevate myself and put others down. It includes that. This includes many thoughts. It includes condemning thoughts about others. It says in Romans 12:3, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. And that's exactly, the, I mean, Romans 12, 1 through 3, and 1 Peter 13 and 14, I was amazed at how much those are parallel scriptures. But this includes not only lustful thoughts, immoral thoughts, it includes condemning thoughts, it includes thoughts of pride, or thoughts, if you allow your thoughts to think, where you're always a hero, you think of yourself as a hero, and doing great things, and impressing other people, it's just, the whole thing, we just need to gird up the loins of our mind, that is important if we're going to live a holy life. But we tend to think that if we just allow it in our mind, it's okay. We don't, you know, we would never do this. We would never look at that pornographic image. I'm sorry, we would never share with someone that we did that. But we, or look at the pornographic image, but we would leave a lustful thought in our mind. So somehow we separate that. We somehow we think if, if I didn't do it, or, then it's okay to think it. And that's not true. Now, we can't help if there's temptation there, but we can't allow those thoughts in our mind. We need to take responsibility and discipline and not allow our mind to be uncontrolled and undisciplined in those thoughts because we do live out of our thoughts. Just because we don't do it or say it, but we allow ourselves to think it, that doesn't mean we're okay. But the real battle for us is going on right here at this point. It's a big battle for all of us. So if we would be holy children, if we would be obedient children, we must learn to discipline our minds. Uh, Romans 12, 2 says to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That'd be a positive way of looking at it. And I simply think that happens through the word of God. So let's take responsibility. Let's put positive things in our mind. Let's meditate on scripture. Something that, young man, I want to encourage you especially. We're so busy and we have so many distractions, but can we stop and learn to meditate deeply on the Word of God? We, we need to, there's, there's deep things in the Word of God, there's deep truth, but it only comes by meditation and by stopping and cutting everything out and letting our mind think and meditate and ruminate on those beautiful truths of God's Word. It's, it's, we, we want to, it feels like the more information available, the shallower our thinking actually becomes. I just want to encourage us. If we could exercise our minds in meditation. We fill our minds with hymns. We fill our minds with, there's many ways to fill our minds. But the, simply the direction here is to gird up the loins of your mind. That's one important thing. If we're going to live a holy life, we must do that. Secondly, it says be sober. Be sober means to abstain from wine. Be discreet to watch, guard against. It says in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Be sober, same word, be vigilant, be alert and awake, for your adversary, the devil, goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Same, same word there. But be sober. If we're going to live a holy life, we're going to, it takes sobriety. Now, sobriety or sober doesn't mean we need to go along, We need to go around through life long-faced, pessimistic, doom and gloom. And No, that's not sobriety. Sobriety means you're alert, you're discreet, you're watchful. It It doesn't mean you don't have joy and peace and rejoicing in your life. Not at all. But sometimes we have a, a, a different view of sobriety. But it does mean that you're alert and you're watching and you're careful 
And you're going through life that way. Like you're on enemy territory. Because we are. You know, God's children experience, we experience tremendous joy. But the fact is, the battle is real. Our enemy is real. He's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So we go through this world, we go through life carefully, prayerfully. With our ears open, our eyes open, filling our minds with the word of God. And endeavoring to be faithful and obedient children to God. But we're, the battle was real. It's kind of like if you think of, let's say you're a messenger and you're passing through enemy territory, enemy lines in a battle or a war. You would be careful. I mean, you would, be, you would go through there carefully. That's the picture I have. You would be sober. Sober, it's the, the literal Greek says to abstain from wine. Why would you abstain from wine? What does wine do? Too much wine. Unreality, but it dulls your senses, too. It dulls your senses. Now, sobriety doesn't just mean that we abstain from wine. There are other things that we encounter in life that dull our senses, our spiritual senses. And we heard about that this morning. I don't need to elaborate on it. But technology has that effect. I'm sorry. We need to be aware of it. The people that are not Christians... They're writing the books against technology saying, this stuff affects your minds. It affects your life. So if you use it a lot, detox out on the weekends. You put your phone away. You don't ever sleep in, in, or have your phone in the bedroom. They have all these lists of things. These are people that aren't Christians. Technology dulls our senses. It can, especially. So there are other areas that dull our senses. Affluence and wealth. We heard about that this morning. Lavish eating and banqueting. And then there's many good things in life, good things, but we can be so wrapped up in it that it's actually having a dulling effect on us spiritually. Sober, be sober, all right? Thirdly, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts. Now, fashioning here is the same Greek word as in Romans 12, 2, where it says, be not conformed to this world. Fashioning, conformed, same Greek word. It's an interesting word in the Greek, we're not going to go into that. Um, but we face tremendous pressure. The world is a power that is endeavoring to press us into its mold. It's, it is just that, it's pressure. <clears throat> the picture I have here, not fashioning yourself according to the former lusts and your ignorance. The picture I have here is that if we kind of, if we drift into carelessness and coldness in our Christian life, if we drift into that in our pursuit of God, we'll find that the former lusts that actually had us ensnared will become appealing again. And we'll find ourselves messing around with those former lusts. You know, that's what happened to the children of Israel. They weren't in the wilderness that long and they were lusting after the leeks and the garlics of Egypt. They lost their vision of where they were gone. They lost their purpose and motivation. They lost their view of God. And they started lusting after those things in Egypt. We face outward pressure from the world to press us into its mold. Okay, we're going to press on here. Time is going by. So there's two more things that we want to look at. God's obedient children... As, as obedient children, we're called to a life of holiness. One of them is in verse 17. Judgment is coming. This is followed by... So this is a call here in verse 17 to carefulness. Past the time of your traveling, your sojourning here in fear. In fear, simply be careful. It's a call to carefulness, to holiness. We have a divine appointment at the judgment scene of Christ. And some scholar, I'm not going to elaborate on this much, but this is simply a reminder. We heard about it uh, earlier this morning. But some scholar has, was once asked, this was a man of brilliance, that a scholar, well-known scholar. He was once asked, what is the greatest thought that a person can ever think? And he thought a while, and he said, the greatest thought that has ever traveled through the corridors of men's mind is the thought of standing before the judgment seat of God. That's an amazing thought. It says here about this judgment that the judge is our father. Wow, that's good. But it also says he will judge without respect of persons. He will judge without respect of persons. It also says that he will judge 
us according to our work. Every man's work. Every judgment scene that I'm aware of in the New Testament, feel free to correct me if this isn't so, but every judgment scene that I'm aware of in the New Testament, people, we're going to be judged by our works. Not only for a judgment against sin and unrighteousness, but also our work, our labors in the kingdom will be judged, as it says in 1 Corinthians 3.13, of what sort it is. Is it wood, hay, or stubble? Is it gold, silver, and precious stone? That's sobering thoughts. Okay, the second thing here we want to look at, as far as the call to live a holy life, is we should do it out of the fact that the judgment is coming. We will give an answer and account to God. Secondly, we notice that it is a precious redemption, verses 18 through 21. We were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Jesus. God didn't stretch out his finger to bring us salvation. He didn't stretch out one finger and bring us salvation. He didn't send one of the angels, but he himself came in the person of Jesus Christ. Through his son, the Lord Jesus, God himself came and he shed his blood. For our redemption. That is precious blood. And that is why we should live in holiness. Because the precious blood of Christ was shed for our cleansing and our keeping. As it says in Hebrews 9 verse 10. Tell us. I'm sorry. Hebrews chapters 9 and 10. Tell us some beautiful truth about the blood of Christ and its power and its beauty. Hebrews 10, 12. But this man, Christ Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for the sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Hebrews 10, 14. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. We sang this morning, there's power in the blood. But our salvation, our redemption was procured and brought to us through the precious blood of Jesus. And we have the warning later in Hebrews 10 that we don't trod underfoot this blood of Jesus, the blood of the covenant, and count it an unholy thing. Carefulness is is called for there. We're called to holiness as obedient children. The second characteristic of God's children, we want to look at verse 22. Seeing... Ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. The second characteristic of God's children is they love one another. His obedient children love one another. There's the love of the brethren, and that word here is Philadelphia in the Greek. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed from death Unto life, because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. And there's a love for the people of God. There's a love for the church of God. I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode, the church our blessed Redeemer saved with his own precious blood. For her my tears shall fall, for her my prayers ascend, to her my cares and toils be given, till toils and cares shall end. There's a love for the people of God, for the church that he died to redeem with his blood. For her my tears shall fall. Have you ever shed tears for the church of Jesus Christ? A love of the brethren. We can pray for other churches and outreaches. What happens in your heart? What happens in my heart when we hear that the church over there is struggling? We can say, yeah, well, I figured that was coming. We can usually have something to say. God forbid. But if we love the church of Jesus Christ and we hear some of these this people are struggling. There's, there's this other church group. They might not be part of our group, but we hear they're struggling. Do we care? Do we have that love of the brethren in our hearts? Will we love God's people? Do you pray for those who are suffering in persecutions, in prisons, in other countries? The Christians. We're called to do that. To remember them in prayer. This gets a little more specific. It says, love one another. So there's a love of the brethren, and there's a see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. My, that's quite a picture. Pure heart fervently. 
Would you like to be part of a church like that? Where people love each other? That's a challenge. It says, again, in 1 Peter 4, verse 8, he says, and above all things, after he gives all this direction that we're going to look at, and some of it very practically through these chapters, he says, above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Charity will deliver you from many offenses and sins. True love of God in our hearts for one another. It's so beautiful, young people. Let's get a vision for it and go after it. God wants us to live it out. He has a full supply of his love that he wants to pour into our life so the church of Jesus Christ can actually love each other. Both times in 1 Peter, fervent is used. And John, that's an amazing picture, fervent love. John said, my little children, love one another. Gentle old saint, Apostle John, they say when they carried him in front as an old man, set him up on his tottering legs, he addressed the congregation. said, brethren, little children, love one another. And here Peter, with his boldness and his zeal, he says, love one another fervently. That's Peter, praise the Lord. Intensely, intense love would take care of many sins. This love suffers long and is kind. Suffers long and is kind. Are you? Do you suffer long? I don't do so well with that. Sometimes I I just start suffering a little bit and I start squealing. I don't like it. But love suffers long and is kind. It envies not. Vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked. This love, it says, is unfeigned. There's no pretense. It's genuine. It's sincere. You know, Jesus said in John 13, There are new commandments I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And in that, he gave us a command, but he also gave us an example. And he gave us a promise, like we heard. Jesus showed his love to us by laying down his life. In that hymn, heart with loving heart united, it says, may we, the second verse says, may we also love each other and all selfish claims deny that the brother for the brother will not hesitate to die. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. And I was told, I've been told that there was a church group in Eastern Europe that actually made it a matter of membership. If you wanted to be a member, you had to consider, is there any person in this congregation you would not be willing to lay your life down for? And you could not be a member until you were willing to lay your life down for any member, any other member. That's quite a test of membership. Years ago, I talked to a young man who was struggling in his relationship with his father. And his father maybe wasn't all he should have been. But I could relate to this. I, I struggled with that some in my own life till God did a work in my heart. But I just told him this. I said, okay, so you have your father and this is you. And you want this relationship to work out. I said, I, the only way I see it will really work out is if one of you die. So I said, you can go ahead and try to kill your dad or you can die. <laughs> he chose to die. And it was a blessing. But sometimes we just need to die so there can be love, so relationships can flow the way they should, and it can be a beautiful thing. But we die hard, don't we? We die like the two men that died with Jesus on the cross. Jesus showed us how to die. He laid down. These men, I can only imagine how many Roman soldiers it took to hold these men down. They died hard. Jesus showed us how to die. Do we love the people in our lives with unfeigned, fervent love? This is a serious thing. This is important characteristics of the children of God. Your parents, your siblings, the people in your congregation, your elders and ministers, just let them, lift them up before your mind in prayer sometime and reflect. Do I love them with a pure heart fervently?
The third characteristic of God's children is they are born again by the word of God. Verse 23 through 25. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. God's word is incorruptible. That means without, it's immortal, it's undecaying. It's, it endures forever. It abides forever. In verse 23, you have there, it abides forever. In verse 25, it says it endures forever. That is the exact same Greek word. It's meno, I believe. But it's the exact same Greek word, abides forever and endures forever. That, the picture, the thing that's really pointing out in these three verses is that God's word, like Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. It's enduring. It's without decay and without corruption. There's a lot more that could be said here about this seed. I just want to say that the seed of God's word that we are born again or converted by, we're actually born again by the word of God. I want to show you that two places quickly. Okay? But this seed of God's word has tremendous potential. I want you to get this vision. Genesis 1.1. We have the picture that there was chaos in the universe. And the Spirit of God moved up on the waters, and then it says, God said. God's word went out, and he created the universe. That's how powerful God's word is. God's word is packed with potential. It is packed with creative power. And I could point that, that, we could look at that from multiple places in the Scripture. But the same word that said, let there be light, there was light. Let there be this, it happened. That's, and it's still there. It's still holding in place by the Word of God. That's how powerful it is. There's potential in the Word of God. And if that seed is in us, that's how we're born again. Wow. That's a lot of potential. We could look. That was the creation of the universe. We could look at the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, you have the Spirit of God and the Word of God coming together to, to create a new creation, the church. You find the Word of God referenced more in Acts than in any other book in the New Testament. And the Spirit of God the same way. The Spirit and the Word came together and created a new creation. There's power in the Word of God. It is alive, it says. Yeah, you've heard. (laughs) It's alive. Sometimes it's a little dry, isn't it, when we read. But don't. Don't go on and on and on. I mean, do read your Bible, but if you're struggling with that, the best thing to do is just get on your knees and say, God, this word's a little dry. Could you help me? And don't just just do the routine. Do that at very best, but don't settle for that. This word is quick, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. I'll tell you a story. I'm running out of time. Okay, so this Jonathan Goforth went to China, and he met this Mandarin, this Chinese governor or uh, leader there, it was a Mandarin, I believe, and he gave him the Word of God, the New Testament in Chinese, to this Mandarin who had never heard the gospel before that I'm aware of in the account. This Mandarin, this Chinese official, took this New Testament and began to read it. And he came back in a few months, and he said, Missionary, what is in that Word? I can no longer commit adultery. I can no longer steal. I can no longer... I can't do it anymore. What is in this Word? And the Word of God transformed his life. Can you imagine just reading the Bible like you never read it before? That's how we need to read it. Okay, it makes his children alive. I I really would like to look at these two examples. We'll maybe look at one for sure. Let's turn to the Gospel of John. Keep your fingers here. We're talking about being born again by the Word of God. This, is, this came so real to my heart in the last three months. I just need to share it because it blessed me, if you'll let me. John chapter 5, the Gospel of John chapter 5, reading verse 24. <clears throat> you probably saw this a long time ago, but it's, it was a blessing to me. John 5, 24, Jesus speaking, Truly, truly, or verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word... And believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, notice this verse, the hour is coming and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. And I used to always think, yeah, okay, the 
the time's coming. I mean, Lazarus, he called Lazarus from the tomb. He raised some other people from the dead. And the time is coming when he'll call the dead out of the graves. That is not what he's talking about in this verse. Because it goes on and says this. Verse 26, for as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this. Don't marvel at what I just told you. For the hour is coming into which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. And they shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So, verse 25 is not talking about the last resurrection. Verse 25 is saying that the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and shall live. And that's how any one of us are made alive in the Spirit. The Word of God comes, and faith comes up from our heart, and there's a holy conception that takes place, and we are born from above. But that is now. The dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. That's how we live. By hearing the voice of the Son of God. That's how we're born again. In Acts 16, we have an example. I'll just tell you the story about the Philippian jailer there. And he came out, and he said he was trembling. And he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, repent and believe the gospel, whatever it said there. And then it says, they begin to speak unto him the word of God. They said, repent and believe. And then they started ministering him the word of God. And sometime in that ministry, he heard the voice of the Son of God through the word of God. And he was born again. Isn't that a blessing? That's my hope in preaching the gospel. That men and women will hear the word of Jesus. And there will be faith rise in their heart. And they will be born again. We don't get them into the kingdom by by uh, men's philosophies and ideas. Okay, the fourth characteristic of God's children is that they are growing in grace. And Peter had a burden for this. Second Peter 3.18 closes there with him saying, but that you would grow in grace, in the, in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He had a real burden that God's children would grow in grace. <clears throat> in spiritual growth here again, in spiritual growth, We have things that we need to put off if we want to grow in grace. There are things we deny ourselves of if we want more grace. We heard about that. There are also things that we have to do to put on is the picture. It it mentions some things here that we need to put off. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby, If so be, you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. I'm going to run through these rather quickly. But in spiritual growth, if we would grow spiritually, there are some things we put off. Especially outward things. We put them off. It names them here. All malice. It doesn't just say malice. It says all malice. I like Peter's zeal in there. All malice. That means badness, naughtiness. It's the opposite of excellence. It's the opposite of moral excellence. Malice. Put it off. God predestinated us to be conformed to the image of His Son. That is the purpose God has in calling us and saving us through the Lord Jesus, that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. That is His purpose, His eternal purpose, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Put off all malice, all badness, all naughtiness, all that is not excellence, all that is not perfection. Secondly, lay aside all guile, guile, Guile is decoy or trick, deceit, craft. The vine says it's bait, a snare, or subtlety. Webster said it's cunning or duplicity. Lay aside all guile. And I'll just give you an example of this later in chapter 2. It says in verse 22, speaking of Jesus, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Lay aside all guile. And it goes very closely with the next one, hypocrisies. Acting under a feigned part, pretense, or deceit. You know, the Pharisees were called hypocrites. They did not, and the reason they were is not because they were so concerned and careful, outwardly careful for holiness. Jesus said, do what they say, just don't do as they do. For they say and do not, he said. Lay aside hypocrisies. And we tend to think, this applies, we can easily think, this applies only to the people that are really being careful. 
the people that are taking extra steps to be careful, they're the ones that are, we call it legalism. And we had a visitor at our church years ago. He came from a plain background and was moving out away from that, and he enjoyed the service. And after lunch, he said this. He said, this is a blessing, what you have here. But he said, beware of legalism. Okay. I said, what is legalism? He said, he got kind of flustered. And he said, well, you know what the Pharisees did. I said, Jesus admonished the Pharisees for hypocrisy. And I don't care where you're at on that spectrum. You can worship God as a hypocrite. You can come to church and praise him. I love Jesus. I love Jesus. And go live how you want to. That's being a hypocrite. So that is not just to one segment of God's people is all I'm trying to say. It's telling all of us, let us be careful, put off all hypocrisies. Be genuine and sincere. Envies. This is ill will or jealousy. The vine says it's the feeling of displeasure produced by witnessing or hearing the advantage or prosperity of others. You hear others are doing well, and it goes, I wanted to do that. I wanted to do that. I wanted that credit. And I just want to say this, that envy, young people, envy has destroyed so many of God's children and so many of God's churches. I could stand here today and weep over it. Envy. May God help us. Put off envy. Beware of envy. Learn to be fine at being overlooked and rejoice when others prosper and excel. Lay aside evil speakings. Well, this is never found among God's people. God's obedient children. They don't speak evil of one another, right? Evil speaking? It simply means defamation or backbiting. Surely this is not found among God's children. I wish that would be the case. But how many times we as God's children hurt each other with our words? Oh, God help us. But it says lay aside those things. We're talking about entering into God's eternal glory as obedient children. Lay aside. We need to lay aside these things and be growing in grace and holiness. And finally, we grow through the Word of God. Many times, God's children are not growing. I'm I'm going to close up here. I'm sorry. I'm taking a few extra minutes. Thanks for your kindness there. Many times, God's children are not growing because they are not feeding their spiritual man from the Word of God. And I want you just to picture, we've all probably seen pictures of people that are starving. I mean, really starving in another country. You can see all their ribs. They're deformed almost. You can see there, they just looks terrible. The picture of those people. But young people, many of God's children look like that spiritually. Their spiritual man is starving. If we would grow, one of the characteristics of God's obedient children is that they're growing. I like when my children grow. They grow fast, but it's a blessing when, when you're six-year-old learns to read and says, Daddy, I want to read you a story. I can read. And those are blessing. Development and growth is a blessing. It is for God, too, when his children grow up. And we must learn, it says here, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. We need to feed our spiritual men. We need to learn, young people, to be able to feed ourselves spiritually. And this is a challenge for us ministers. We can be like those fountains you've seen in the city square that are made of, of stone or made of brass. And the water is shooting out of the mouth of the statue. But they don't get any benefit of it. And we as ministers need to learn how to feed ourselves. We need to learn how to live off the word of God as well as feed others. All right, we need to wrap up. Deuteronomy 8, you know what this says. It says, God led his, the first three verses, he led the children of Israel through the wilderness. He gave them manna from heaven. He says that I might prove what is in your heart. And that I also might teach you this. That I might teach you. I led you through the wilderness for 40 years. And I provided that manna day by day. That I might teach you. That you might learn that man does not live by bread alone. But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's how we live spiritually. And God said, I took you on this journey, my children, through the wilderness, that you might learn that you don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's how we live. And I'm a fish farmer, all right? Those fish, I want to tell you the difference between a duck and a fish. Simple, basic difference. A duck needs, kind of needs water to live. But that duck floats along the top of the water, 
And once in a while he dives under and gets something to eat or he drinks some water. But as a whole, the duck just floats along the top. Well, that fish, that fish that I'm trying to raise in those tanks, that fish lives in the water. He gets his oxygen out of the water. He gets his, his whole life is taken out of that water or through that water. He lives in the water. And I just want to encourage you, as you think of growing as obedient children, through the Word of God, the Word of God is that water. We don't just skim across the top and take a dip once in a while, but we are the fish. We live in the water. We get our life from the water. May God bless you.